OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to Supporters Fund Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Poffin, and let's please welcome Jessica Carr, the GP partner at Coyota Ventures as our investor today. Welcome, Jessica. It's a real pleasure to have you joining us, joining us today. Thank you. Excited to be here. Uh, we're super excited to have you today for many reasons. The biggest one is because you're doing some really exciting things with your fund. And then to pull back the layers, we're super interested to learn about your experience in the startup world all the way up. And you've got some pretty cool things that not a lot of people have had the opportunity to build inside of. And I'm sure you get these questions all the time, but we're excited to dive in and, and learn a lot more about you and what you guys are doing today. So the best way we like to start is if you can share a little bit of insight about your past, where you are today, and then one thing about you that nobody would know. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, so sort of how I got here today, um, I'm originally from West Texas. Um, my dad's a dentist and I started working in my dad's dentist office as sort of a receptionist and filing charts and, you know, doing admin things. Um, and I loved, you know, helping patients. And so I started college as pre-med. Um, my mom's also an ob nurse. And so that definitely comes full circle later. And uh, started college pre-med. I went to Texas State. Um, it's outside of Austin, Texas. Really nice little college town with a river running through it. And that was the main thing everybody did for fun is just go float the river. And it was really nice. Um, and, you know, throughout my undergrad, I, I started out as bio major, but I, I really enjoyed chemistry. I've been very fortunate. I had some good professors and uh, changed my uh, major to biochem. And then I also actually majored in philosophy and uh, definitely had an interest in, in a lot of philosophical questions. Um, and one uh, course that really influenced me was environmental ethics. And so learning about um, how you can live sustainably and how that also uh, ties in with, with the food choices that you make. Um, and if you don't know anything about Amarillo, Texas, uh, you might know that there's just a lot of cows around. So um, I think just like learning more about sort of, um, yeah, climate change and how factory farming plays a role. So um, I ended up not deciding to go to med school. It wasn't really my path. I had uh, done some undergraduate research um, and just figured out that I was, you know, good at research, maybe enjoyed aspects of it, though, who enjoys being in a lab all the time, like that's not always the most fun, but um, I decided to go to graduate school for biochem and uh, went to UC San Diego. I was in a PhD program and I ended up leaving with a master's after two years. Uh, again, just decided it wasn't totally my course to, you know, spend 80 hours a week in a lab where maybe I'll publish some papers and not know exactly what, where the end result is at the end. Um, so I wanted to do something more tangible and also tie in some of my passion for sustainability. So it was very fortunate that I got contacted by Impossible Foods when it was less than a year old. Um, and so I moved up to San Francisco 
uh, started working on Impossible. There was only uh, 12, you know, I was number 12. Um, so really fun times, a lot of, uh, you know, building, a lot of um, everybody just like jumping in to get things done. Um, definitely a lot of good stories behind that. Um, so I was working in the research and development side. There was a lot of biochemist. Um, it's founded by a biochemist from Stanford. Um, and basically he realized that, you know, to make people want to eat less meat, you basically can just give them a substitute that that doesn't sacrifice sort of the experience of eating meat. And so our whole goal was to understand first, like what is meat? Uh, and I was especially on the flavor side. Um, so lots of interesting, you know, flavor chemistry <laughs> challenges there. And we were using analytical chemistry to actually look at the compounds that make up flavor. And um, so, yeah, we were, we were basically like understanding meat and then also the same time, how to recreate it. Um, and, you know, partly what gives impossible its distinction as a protein that is similar to the, the protein in the muscle. And so um, it took about five years from Impossible's inception up through the launch. So I was there for four of those years, helping develop and scale and launch. And um, once that kind of happened, I realized that I wanted to move into a business role and have the ability to make you know business decisions. And so I left Impossible. I stayed actually part-time as a uh, consultant, but my main focus was um, I was doing an MBA, and uh, that took you know two years. And I started consulting with other early stage startups. I just really love the early days where it's you know forming a team, figuring out what the product is, product market fit, and it's just I think a really exciting time. Um, so I consulted for about two years with with startups um, globally. A lot of them were in the plant-based meat sector, um, but then, you know, a couple other sort of, you know, tech-related or food tech-related projects. And um, yeah, and I wanted to take that skill set into making investment decisions. Um, and so I started working with a fund focused on um, impact. So they had a few different sustainable development goals that they wanted to focus on. And one of them, uh, you know, I did use some of my food tech knowledge. Um, and then um, there is another sustainable development goal for gender equality. And so I started seeing uh, women's health and sexual wellness deals with that. And I just kind of realized, like, this is really the only thing that I want to focus on now. Um, I think out of food technology, it's like impossible to just set the bar so high and there's a lot of copycats and I just started feeling kind of bored of the space. Like, um, but then when it comes to women's health, it's like, there's just huge market sizes, huge needs, amazing innovations, and also just like a very collaborative feel for the most part. Um, so I fell in love with it and knew that I wanted to start a fund. So I guess we'll get more into the fund side in a minute, but a uh, fun fact that a lot of people don't know is that I uh, swim in San Francisco Bay and I've done the Alcatraz swim twice now. Well, it's an amazing story. Uh, the background was awesome. Thank you very much for sharing that. And then bam, right into the Alcatraz swim. You've done that twice. Yeah. That's incredible. How far is it? It's about, it depends on where you're in. So if you, one of them is two miles. If you go a little further west towards Golden Gate Bridge, um, and then there's also a swim club uh, at Aquatic Park that I'm part of. And so uh, that's the nice swim is like Alcatraz to the swim club and then go straight to the sauna. 
And they talk about it in the movie and all of the articles you read that how impossible it was to swim this and the water is terrible. It's super cold. You've done it twice. I'm kind of thinking that they were trying to make it like this was a really bad place to go and they didn't want anybody to escape. So they had to carry this rumor, but it sounds like, and I've seen some, my brother's been there. I've seen some footage. It is crazy. Um, so I'm assuming there's certain times when you can swim it where it's better, a little safer and a little bit warmer. Yeah, to do. it does have like the water temperature fluctuates through the year. So it could get warmer in the summer. And then um, I think you need to understand the tides. And so I think that the inmates who escaped must have known that. So it's very doable. I think it's more just like, you know, where do you get out where people are not, not going to see you? So, you know. I don't, I don't know what happened to those uh, inmates, but I like to think they made it. <laughs> I'm going to guess they did too, since uh, it sounds like a pretty exciting, fun uh, swim. So that's pretty awesome. Well, I wanted to take back, kind of go back to your, your earlier days. And what is pretty cool is that you've had this real entrepreneurial experience all the way through your career. So starting off working in your father's office in an entrepreneurial aspect, you're learning the ropes, you're learning the business, and then you're going into school and you're kind of diving into this, as you call it, research. But I find that research is in any role is a good thing because you're learning what's going on, you're building inside of your environment. And then as you finished up your, your degree, you went into Impossible Foods. And I, I'm dying to know about Impossible Foods because one, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, I guess, of, um, of Patrick because of what he did and his background, but also he put together quite the strong team right away in the beginning. Uh, so when you were part of this, um, I guess, team of 12, and I'm sure it grew quite quickly over the years, uh, when you were in this role and you were going in and you guys were exploring how this product was going to be made, and there's so many elements that get into it from taste, smell, texture, feeling, did everybody wear multiple hats or did they really separate this out so that you guys could focus in and really come up with the best product and goal and you kind of collaborate as you go or was it really broken it into separate changed. sections? Like in the beginning, I would say everybody was wearing multiple hats, at least just within research and development. Like from the beginning, we did break it up and say like, okay, we know we need like to make plant protein the basis of it. But at the time, another challenge was like now there's a lots of, uh, you know, they're called texturized vegetable protein. It's basically the base of most of these uh, plant-based meat products. But it wasn't like plant-based meat wasn't a thing 10 years ago. TVP was actually created to feed animals protein. Um, and so it's kind of ironic that now they're being repurposed for that. But there really were not very many options. Um, all of the soy ones just taste horrible because they're designed for animals and wheat wasn't that much better. And those were like the two protein choices. And so it was like, okay, we know we need, like we started out thinking we had to make our own TVP. So there's like an extruder involved. So there's like, you know, one person kind of owns the extruder process. At first I was uh, owning the fat process. So I called myself the fat lady. <laughs> and uh, so that was interesting. So it was just like emulsifying fats with proteins and figuring out how to make that sort of like the fat part of meat. Um, but then, you know, there were like lots of milestones that we needed to all jump in together, filing the first patent. Um, we went to Texas a couple of times to kind of scale up like some of the protein purification at this farm. <laughs> so that was very interesting. And just a lot of milestones that everybody jumped in. 
And then, you know, yeah, every time there was like a new series of funding, there would be like a huge wave of new people. Um, and then it had to become more organized. And uh, I guess siloed is how I sort of felt sometimes of like, okay, like, yes, I need to like achieve my flavor milestones, but I definitely loved more of the cross-functional work where it's like, and the flavor was pretty cross-functional because it was, you know, doing some of the fundamental research of like understanding meat flavor and how to recreate it, but it had to translate into the product. So I was re working really closely. Like we had a product team, uh, texture team, um, and like protein. And so like we all plugged in pretty well together. The knowledge that you're gaining through this process, it's kind of double-sided. You're one, you're learning through the raise process, the scaling process, which kind of all ties together. And then you're really dying, diving into learning about how food production and especially new types of food production are really working. And I think for the audience and for a lot of startups, I think sometimes they might go in this maybe a little green thinking that this is an easy process. And you mentioned it took five years. And as you raise more money, more teams, more silos, everything is really being structured and built out to really win at each one of these stages because all of them combined make one great product, mm -hmm. but individually they all have to be success successful. How did you grow within that scale up? How did you find that everybody was working to build this product forward? Was it very organized from the top or was it kind of just feed and fam and you just figured it out as you went because you were moving at such a fast pace because I think at uh, any given time, the company eventually got to, uh, before they went to public, they were, it was a thousand people or something. Is that? Well, it's uh, actually impossible. It's still private. They just raised their, like another series of funding last year. So, um, we're all still, you know, hoping it goes public soon, but, um, definitely kind of both. There's like top down organization of like, we know sort of the KPIs and who we're reporting to, but, um, and then, you know, from the bottom up, it's like, as the sort of people working with a day to day, we would see where the, the gaps were and we'd fill it ourselves. Um, and so I think that was, that was part of the growth is just like, you know, even just noticing something that needs to be fixed that no one else noticed. Um, and this is like a weird story, but one of the, our first chef partners, Tracy, was so awesome. Um, we all knew like if we went into the fridge and opened a bag of it, there'd be like a very strong sulfur smell. We we're like, oh, this is a problem. And then um, I think this was a learning of like not fixing something we knew was a problem because Tracy was uh, in a cab in New York, opened a bag of it and said she wanted to throw up in the cab. And we were like, oh, like some of us like should have should have done that because we knew. But sometimes it's the other people don't know. So it's not part of your day to day. Like, oh, we need to fix the smell problem. <laughs> but but it's definitely a learning of uh, noticing something that other people might not know about and figuring out how to, you know, make a plan to address that and call attention to it. Does that come from, again, the team perspective and working with groups together, or is it bringing in outside perspectives? Because like you said, she was in a cab before she noticed it, and it was something that you guys had thought about, but maybe weren't rushed to do it. So how do you really put an emphasis on all of these pieces? It's like uh, building a spaceship. Uh, I'm sure that there's the same issue where someone was like, well, you know, that could be freezing, but since we're not in that climate, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. So there's always something that can be triggering another piece that you need to look into. And food is 
well, it's pretty dear to me because we love investing in, in food companies. We're CPG all the way, but uh, it, it's not the easiest place to invest in because it takes a lot of capital, takes a lot of grit mm-hmm. to kind of work through these channels and get it in front of the right departments along the way. So is there maybe some advice that you can provide to founders when they are working through this? Uh, how do you minimize problems and how do you scale and build this company up quickly? And I know that's a broad question, yeah. but well, is I there like things that come to mind? Yeah. Your question about like inside versus outside sort of advice and like, um, I think a lot, like we didn't really start working with the chefs until we were pretty further along in the product development. And so I think something to implement earlier when you can is to, to be more close with the customer. And I think like, we kind of thought we were because like we have, you know, tasters who would give feedback on the product, but then we didn't have like that piece of like chefs being, uh, the customer because that's where we launched and, like lots of learnings, like Tracy was like, oh, I would actually prefer to serve this raw. And we're like, it's not designed for that. Like we have, you have to cook it to 165 every time and there's no exceptions. Like this is what it's designed for. And I think just like learning more about like what was important to Tracy, AKA chefs, um, that, that could have been like way earlier on in the design process. And so I think definitely having outside perspectives is really important as well, especially because we were like almost all biochemists. So we didn't have that sort of creative like food part um, until basically we started working with Tracy and some others. You got the consumer perspective a little bit later, which sounds like a team of engineers working on a product and forgetting that there's an outside audience that has to consume it and their feedback would be pretty valuable to be able to get into that as quick as you possibly can. It's kind of a classic problem in women's health too, is that sometimes a team of engineers might be all men and they might design something. And then a woman will come along and be like, this is totally not like going to solve any pain points and no one's going to buy this thing. And that's definitely a, a historical, uh, bad, you know, thing that's happened in women's health innovation too. That's it's, uh, it's pretty common. I remember this was probably 15 years ago. Um, I was working for a company and we were sitting in a room and it was um, uh, a platform and they were going through making all these decisions. And I, I literally remember saying, uh, how are we making these decisions? There's not even a female in the room. How do you guys have any idea what the response is going to be? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's a good point. We should invite some people into the room. And, and it is, it's sometimes it's this build factor or my idea, I got to go this direction. And you forget the consumer, you forget who you're working in the environment with. And I guess sometimes that can uh, pigeonhole your business or it can obviously put it in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you guys were working through all of these, but as you get larger and you're scaling quicker, bringing in more dollars, sometimes all of this can get lost because now it's rushed to market. You, you've got different deadlines that are now come in from when you were 12th person to your 200th person, there's a big bit of a change that occurs in that process. And I think from a startup perspective, they may not always visualize, am I ever going to get to 200 people? That could be a long time from now, but how do I make sure that when I have my smaller team, I get my product to market and it meets the needs of the consumer. And one thing you brought up that was interesting was that, um, it almost as like a perfectionist, it has to be cooked at 160. And to me, you would think, well, there's going to be some, I guess, nuances in this. Do you really have to cook it at 160? What happens if I like pate style it and just throw it on bread? It sounds like it's planned. 
can it be that bad for me? So how did you guys overcome all of these other things, which were my beliefs on how a product might work or how I'm going to eat a product versus how you're actually pushing that it's supposed to be done? I, I think we did have to do some redesign at that point of like, first of all, you know, get rid of that sulfur smell. Uh, we figured that out pretty quickly. There's some, you know, amino acids that have sulfur in them and we dial that back a little bit. Um, and that, that definitely helped. Um, and then, you know, we had to sort of redesign the product to be a little more flexible. Like there's proteins and gums and different components that actually do need to be cooked to a certain amount. And so it's more just like redesigning it to make it more flexible. Um, and, and so that's kind of how we solved for that. But, you know, it would have been easier to do <laughs> earlier on. And this is all goes back to product fit, product market fit. And because you guys were so new in the space and the comp competition was building up quite quickly, does this actually become, uh, in a way, you're cutting corners and then when those corners hit you, you had to move quickly to correct? Because again, it was who was going to get to market first. There was another big competitor that was going public, uh, I guess, roughly around the same time. And there was two businesses kind of head to head in the market on who was going to come out with the first product. So I'm assuming yeah, that one well, Beyond that Me had already launched. So basically our attitude was just to be like, it honestly is better uh, because Impossible has the heme protein and, and it's just kind of Beyond Me. It doesn't have as much, you know, of those pro like ingredients that makes it like as good or like meat. Um, so like in our minds, it's like, okay, like they already launched, like we got our hands on their first uh when they, they actually randomly launched in Denver, but we had a, a guy there who went to Whole Foods and bought it and sent it to us and we tasted it. And the first product was so bad. So we really weren't that worried because it, we were like, okay, like, yes, they beat us, but that was quite a while before we launched um, to the public. <clears throat> but there really weren't too many others besides Beyond Meat that were actually going to gain more you know, customer share. Um, obviously there's been plant-based meats around for a while, but they're very marketed towards vegans and vegetarians. So they're not the same where like a meat eater, which is like the majority of the U S population, um, we're like targeting them. And so, yes, beyond meat was like the main competitor, but we just were like, okay, once we do launch, we need to have a strategy to be really differentiated, which like the product was, it was more just the marketing challenge of like, you know, emphasizing flavor um, and, you know, launching with David Chang at Momofuku, which is really popular restaurant. He's a really cool, innovative chef. I think that created a lot of buzz and then having, uh, you know, a real constraint on production, but it was like the scarcity mindset of like, oh, there's only a little bit, like it, it just created a lot of buzz. And, and I think all those type of marketing tactics really, again, emphasize on the startup, really help you move in a market, especially a large market, figuring out how you can get into the space that you're going to niche in and expand from. Is there, through the race process that they were going through and where you are today, sitting in the, the seat that you are, is there any learnings that you took from Patrick and team on how they were raising, how they were communicating internally with the team about every raise and the new direction, the new strategy? 
Is there anything you can kind of share about that experience? Because again, fast scaling business, I'm sure they did things that were amazing and other things that were questionable. Um, is there something that you took away from it? A couple of points that you could share on, you know, as you are growing your, your startup, you know, communicate more or uh, do more town halls or do are there things that you suggest that really can help the team get behind uh, the movement uh, in that scalable mm-hmm. fashion? I mean, that, We'd had a lot of town halls. We had a weekly Wednesday meeting that was really helpful, actually. Like we'd have, you know, that time in the office, we'd have a catered vegan lunch and, um, you know, start off with announcements. So they were always pretty transparent, just like, you know, not on like terms of the raise or anything like that, which I, you know, wish I would have like been in more on for learning that, but um, more just, you know, that they would be raising or any, you know, new milestones, any sort of new hires. Um, You know, I think that was a really good practice to just have like the team weekly meeting. Um, And then since we are so academic uh, with Pat coming from Stanford and and that being sort of our culture, we would actually have like a rotating um, presentation. So like sometimes I would present like my findings on meat flavor and, you know, it would get really academic sometimes, which that was the culture. It was really fun. I think definitely maybe a criticism was that we were so academic, like we were founded by a scientist, like the first several years, we only had a couple of business and marketing people. Uh, marketing came way later. So that was like maybe part of the sort of critique is like once the business side came on, we were very siloed and it just felt like, you know, R&D versus business. Um, and, and that kind of still like is in the culture a little bit today from what I can see is just like how you can create you know, like it's great that those were our company values and culture, but then it's also how you build on that to be inclusive of like people who are not coming from that and might also say like, hey, like maybe we shouldn't like spend an hour every week nerding out about the chemistry or the texture. Like I think like the, yeah, a lot of people are like, I'm not going to attend these lectures because it's so academic and I don't understand it anyway. And it just kind of perpetrated like, oh, we're not all like a cohesive team. It's very like they even sit in different rooms all together. So, you know, I think like maybe if I was rebuilding it myself, I would I would be mindful of like, okay, how do you integrate these different um, teams, different skill sets uh, more cohesively? I like that because what you're kind of sharing is that the divide between academics and the function of the business and building it, they needed some middle glue. And it sounds like the real middle glue is the marketing, the communications, uh, changing the flavor of the way the business is representing itself, not just externally, but internally, so that you can really bring those groups together. So it's not this divide between you're super smart and uh, I'm just functional and people feel like, wait a second, I'm smart too. Why can't I participate in the same uh, kind of sharing of information and it's not getting there. And I think that's a good learning that as we start to build out our companies, we tend to do silo quickly because we want everybody to be the best at their one thing, mm-hmm. but there has to be something that really helps everybody learn together and, well, that and was also, inside out. you know, what made Theranos, you know, besides everything else, but like people were like not realizing what was happening as much because they were so siloed and, you know, she would literally put people on such different parts and they wouldn't really like know that something wasn't totally working for a while. And so that was, you know, lots of bad things can come out of that, especially if your culture is to not 
collaborate. So definitely impossible. Wasn't that, you know, siloed or see, they weren't secretive, but it was more just like, you know, everybody's so busy and overwhelmed with what they're doing. Um, that it's sort of like, okay, you know, like how do you still take the time to understand another perspective when you're, when you have like real tight deadlines and piles of work. And it sounds like it's still today. It's a big problem that businesses need to try and resolve as they're growing and scaling their companies so that it doesn't become this massive siloed and uh, Theranos being on the extreme side of, of siloing to protect um, faulty everything. But in this case, I think it's a focus on you've got a great product, great company. How do you keep people under the same strategy, under the same umbrella moving forward and growing together versus mm -hmm. separating based off of logistics of of academics versus uh, product building. But I think there's some great learnings on just making product market fit and utilizing the glue of that marketing side to communicate a lot more aggressively and making it internal so that people can feel part of the same engine that's been building this over the years. Mm -hmm. So now you, you, you've you kind of taken all this amazing knowledge. And, and I think this is like front runner, top of the nine knowledge that you can gain being inside of a startup because you really went from 12th person to a massive scale up mm -hmm. in a matter of years. So taking that knowledge and now fast forward to kind of where you guys are now and, and where you've shifted and pivoted to on the feminine side of products, what kind of got you to shift into that? And I'm assuming that a lot of your biochem background, which is obviously amazing, had to have a play into this because of what that is all about. But what shifted you into saying, you know what, I, I was in the food category. I'm going to try something a little bit different and go into this space. What kind of was that big turning factor? And what are the maybe a couple of things that really stand out in this space that you really enjoy? Yeah, I think so. You know, I was in food tech for a while and I, I always considered myself more of like someone who's a scientist, an entrepreneur, um, working on something that's like consumer facing and also has a positive impact. And so to me, that is what impossible fit in. I didn't consider it as much like that I'm going to stay in food forever. Um, you know, I do love like physical products. I love something that I can experience like eating or smelling or, you know, in terms of women's health, it's like different um, ways to experience things. And so um, that's how I considered my career path, um, not as much just food. Um, and so when I started seeing women's health, like I just realized that it really fit that, but also the problem that I wanted to work on was uh, gender equality, because I do feel that some of the sustainability um, companies and projects, they might, you know, just kind of look at the environment alone without considering, you know, problems uh, related to social justice and, and things like that. And so that was the sort of my viewpoint is like, there's still, you know, like marginalizing groups of people is still a huge problem that can't be ignored uh, when we're only thinking about environment only. And so um, that was kind of my philosophical approach. And yeah, like I said, I was working at the fund where I started seeing women's health deals. And I think also just having every, almost everybody in women's health has had some kind of personal experience, whether it's like having one of the conditions that only affects women, but obviously we all have like pain points around menstruation or birth control. So, um, you know, it's all like very personal to us. Um, and then I also took a lens of like sexual wellness. I learned that 
Um, you know, everybody knows that that women, there's a wage gap where we're not earning as much as men. But I learned that there's an orgasm gap where actually like for every like male orgasm, there's way, way less. And it's, that's a bigger gap than the actual wage gap. And so I just looked into like, why is this? And I learned that the clitoris is actually an organ. It's not just like a little tiny thing. Um, it's actually mostly internal. And I was well into my thirties when I learned that. And I was just like, wow, this is just a societal problem. You can't blame like one person or anything. It's just something that needs to be more brought more attention to and just recognized, uh, you know, I, I had like the experience to make a change in that, um, area because, um, a lot of like early stage women's health founders are still having trouble raising. They need to go out and educate the investors, like what the problem is, what the market is, like convince them that there's actually a big market size, that there's actual a pain point. Um, and that's just been historically like a big problem in investing in women's health. And so I was like, I want to be that VC that they come to and we're like, oh yeah, we, we know this exact problem. We know this exact market and we've been looking for a solution in here. And they're, they're sort of like, thank God we don't have to like sit here and spend our first like two or three meetings explaining this part. I love that. And I think there's just so much to unpack around this because typically when female founders are pitching products of female hygiene, there's kind of this fear, like when they're pitching it, the audience may not always get it. If there's an uncomfortable side to it, the questions that come out are usually backwards because they really don't understand it. So I love the fact that you've kind of harnessed into this space where there's not a lot of knowledge, but also in the background is that a lot of these companies that have come out over the years from the birth control pill that was created by a guy, some, I don't know, 158 years ago, I think it was in 58 or something like that, 60. Um, Pincus, I think his name was, but he developed it and he was in a church. So there was like this weird thing about how they were able to use it and why they didn't use it. So there's like all of these things that have come about for maybe not the right practical reason. And now you, you're going in and saying, well, we got to go and pitch these things and try to make a revolution. And I think there was talk before too about even around um, uh, testing drugs. And they were always testing them on males because there was too many issues testing drugs on females because they could be pregnant. They could be um, at the time of the month. It could be any reason. And it was just too much. Okay. We can't do this. So I think now you've seen such a big revolution in change in the way female hygiene products are being created, the way they're being tested, the way they're being utilized. And I do think that they need to have a lot more um, women founders or women investors coming into this space so they can really revolutionize this and change the way these products are being faced and utilized. And it's going to come from the knowledge and innovation of female founders, people that can really get into it and understand the product. So in taking that knowledge and what you've decided to jump into, is there a couple areas of focus that you really think are really in the need of change today versus maybe what they're going to look like in the future? Yeah, I love that you know so much about this. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, we can divide up women's health by two sort of ways to divide it up. So one is just by industry. So, you know, there's therapeutics, there's med devices, and, and there's all needs in a lot of those. We're a little more focused on like consumer, digital health, uh, diagnostics, um, just because like I don't have the skill set to like understand what's needed to get a FDA 
you know, therapeutic to market or any, you know, I'm have way more help, you know, able to help with consumer products and things that I understand. Um, and then the other way to divide it up is like, by what condition are we talking about? Is it menstruation, menopause, you know, endometriosis, there's a lot of chronic conditions that only affect women. Um, so I would say we're considering pretty much any condition that solely differently or disproportionately affects women. Um, but there's definitely, we're really prioritizing sort of taboo topics that might be uncomfortable to talk about. And so, um, and then we're also looking at that really underserved areas of this already underserved like category. Um, and so fertility is actually like kind of over-invested in. There's a lot of fertility startups that are like far along. There's been, that's the, you know, biggest chunk of uh, VC money has gone into fertility and, and maternal health as well. And not to say that there's not, you know, considerations we'll make in those areas, but, um, you know, we have a, a database of sort of the market sizes of each area. And then we also have a database of uh, how many startups are working in that. And so sometimes we'll see like a huge, huge market size and then only like one or two startups. And we'll say like, there's something here, like as soon as we see a company that has an innovation in a space, like we're going to really like look into that. I love it. And I think, again, taking your background on this and the product side, you're able to take something from nothing to something big. And I, I think that that makes a huge difference in any founder that's looking for that experience and that understanding of how to test a product, how to build taste, smell, all of them. And there's mm -hmm. so much tech innovation that's happening today. There's one, just for an example, they're, they're studying now on how dogs can smell cancer or smell COVID mm -hmm. and they want to take that and turn that into an innovation. So there mm -hmm. is so much stuff that can be done, especially around female health that would just blow our minds away. And you're going to be the one that gets to find this. And I think that's absolutely amazing uh, because again, there is, there's so much out there that we're not even aware of today. Yeah. Is there, true. is there one that you could share today, a story that really resonates with you that stands out about an entrepreneur that, you know, just blew your mind on, on what she came up with or he came up with and what they've built to, to get to where they are today and just show yeah. the audience what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Um, one of the products I have here, it's a tincture and it's called Wile, W-I-L-E. So I met uh, this founder um, a little bit before I launched Coyote, but I just could immediately tell it was a great partnership. Um, and, you know, I just look for really like teams that have an unfair advantage. And so seeing, you know, this, team of three co-founders plus Judy Greer, the actress is actually a, a co-founder as well. Um, so I met them. I just said like, wow, there's nothing like this. So basically they're um, taking, they're making products that address different symptoms uh, from women 40 plus. So it spans like perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause, and women have different uh, symptoms and it might just be unique to each one of them. And so they said like, okay, here's a hot flash formula. For example, they have a lot of different SKUs. Um, and I was just really excited about like, there's a little bit of Western medicine showing that like some of these plant-based extracts have uh, phytoestrogens that help modulate the menopause symptoms. And so there is like a little bit of Western science, but then also there's a little bit of like the Eastern medicine where like Ayurveda is the ancient Indian medicine. And there's a lot of like Ashwagandha is one of the herbs that is very healing in Ayurveda. 
And they, their formulator uh, has a really nice balance of these like, you know, tinctures with the phytoestrogens, but then adding on some of these really like healing things that I would say like Western medicine doesn't like study as much, but I definitely like, you know, have studied a little bit of Ayurveda, very interested in, in how that can be integrated more. And then on top of all like beautiful product formulations, they, they really nailed the marketing where like, you know, right now there might be one or two supplements you can buy at, at CVS or Walgreens, but if they're like, you wouldn't like put them somewhere where people can see they're like ugly. They, they look like shit products. So it probably speaks to what's actually in the formulas. Um, and so they said like, this can be sort of a lifestyle brand for menopause. Um, while also make, like really uh, obviously it has to work. And I totally believe that it does. And, uh, so since we invested, they launched D to C, uh, they're on Grove Collaborative and they'll be uh, in re retail nationwide pretty soon. So like really proud of their progress that they've made. That's awesome. I love it. And again, they're they're serving a real need and a problem that has probably been overlooked or been accommodated by Advil or some other off the shelf drug because people never really took the time to really understand the real problem. And now you've got companies that are really diving into these uh, more female-based uh, concerns and being able to turn them into products. And I would probably even say life-saving um, material that's going to help a lot of people uh, have yeah. a better fruitful life. And sort of like a layer is, is also how I said it's taboo. Like maybe now people are starting to talk about menopause as a market, but I think really like people who experience the symptoms are still embarrassed, like, you know, at work, if they have a hot flash, like people are going to probably shame them or they're not going to be embarrassed and they're not going to, you know, want to talk about menopause at work or things like that. So it's really like it affects all women. It shouldn't be so taboo. And so part of like the layer of it to me is like making something that that kind of advancing the conversation and makes it less taboo and generates you know healthy conversations i love that you brought up the healthy conversation part because one i think all mental health needs this so are you finding that in this community that you're part of is there more conversations that are happening are founders trying to have that uh, discussion more with the people that are going to be buying their products that they are driving into this more because like you said, it's taboo. And that's been a lifetime of taboo because of fear of, I, I think this goes across all uh, people that they're afraid to talk about things that are personal from finance to their mental health, to other issues. But mm -hmm. in the specific area that you're focused on, are people, are they trying to create more conversations? Are they oh, trying yeah. to get uh, and people I would to say talk more? Definitely. They definitely are in many ways. And one example that, you know, might be silly, but it totally makes sense is having the celebrity partnerships. Um, so while working with Judy Greer and Judy Greer started to go on, you know, Instagram, you know, posting about it, doing some lives. Um, another company we invested in is Maud um, and they have Dakota Johnson, who was in Fifty Shades of Grey. And so she's, you know, definitely an ideal partner there to advance conversations around like women's sexuality. Um, and, and so that's just one way is to have like an influential voice speaking up, you know, like Amy Schumer came out and talked about endometriosis, like that affects one in 10 women, but a lot of people like 
don't even know how to say the word or like never heard of it before. But it's huge. It's a huge problem. And so I think that's one way it's like, yes, yeah, a little silly that, but it's like celebrities have the influence. Like once they start talking about and mental health is a huge one too. Like that's been, you know, it wasn't, it was historically very taboo, but I think part of what helped drive it forward was have people in the Olympics say like, wow, this is really affecting my mental health. I need to set some boundaries. And I think it's definitely helped people be able to talk about it. Totally agree with that and and very well shared. Uh, We're going to now move along and and thank you very much for all of that. We're going to move into the rapid fire questions now. Okay. All right. So the way this works is that you're coming in from obviously the VC side and you're going to pick one or the other, which one fits you best. Okay. All right. Founder or co-founder? Co-founder. Unicorn or four-year 10x exit? Four-year 10x. Tech or CPG? CPG. NFT or Web 3.0? NFT. AI or blockchain? AI. First-time founder or second, third-time founder? Second, third time. First money in or series A? First money in. Angel or VC? VC. Board seat or observer? Observer. Safe or convertible note? Safe. Lead or follow? Follow. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Favorite part of investing? Seeing success of the the portfolio companies. Number of companies invested per year? 20. Bam! Awesome. (laughs) Preferred terms? Um, It's more about, um, right now we're focused on really early. So it's more about valuation or the cap. So we're trying to not do much under over uh, 15 million. You mentioned a little bit of this, but just to reiterate, uh, verticals of focus. Um, CPG, but also like biotech meets CPG and um, digital health diagnostics um, apps. Two qualities a startup requires in order to stand out in your eyes. Capital efficiency, uh, unfair advantage. I love it. Okay, we're going to jump into the personal side. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Book or movie? Book. Superman or Batman? Superman. Restaurant or picnic? Picnic. That's hard. I love them both. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Oprah, for sure. Totally agree. She's a beast. <laughs> Mountain or beach? Love them both too. Uh, beach. Bike or run? Bike. Big Mac or Chick McNugget? Uh, <laughs> I was historically a Chicken McNugget person. I actually didn't have a Big Mac for most of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I, literally, the other day I was thinking about this. I don't even know why. And I'm like, they should call. They should come out with 
the chicken mac. And it should be the chicken instead of the the meat beef. It should be a chicken mm-hmm. mac. I know they have like chicken. I just thought, man. But also impossible. Uh, I thought the same. Chicken, chicken mac. Yeah, chicken mac. Impossible came out with some really good chicken nuggets. So I'll put a plug in for that um, at Gots if you're in San Francisco sometime. It's really delicious. Done. I want to try those. I want to try those. So good. Uh, trophy or money? Money. Beer or wine? Wine. Camera or mobile phone? Hmm, phone. King or rich? Hmm, that's hard. Uh, I guess rich. Concert or amusement park? Concert. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Birthday cake. Ted talk or book reading? Book reading. Most famous person that pops into your mind? Oprah, because we just talked about her. <laughs> I've been thinking about reversing those just because I'm like, I think I'm giving it away. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> thinking about that. <laughs> Favorite sports team? Uh, S- SF Giants. I like it. Mm-hmm. Favorite book? I love The Alchemist. Ooh, I like that. But also, too. yeah, I guess also like Women Who Run With The Wolves is part of a, how, you know, I came up with the whole concept of Coyote Ventures. Actually, yeah, so that's probably up there. With It's hard to, for me because I love books. Um, so I think those two, Alchemist and Women Who Run With The Wolves. Love it. First brand that pops into your mind? While... <laughs> Which one? Sorry. Wild, the one that I was talking about that has oh, the nice. okay, okay. tinctures. Yeah, I have it like sitting here on my desk. <laughs> I like it. That's good. All right. Favorite movie and what character would you play? My favorite movie of all time is Kill Bill. Uh, there's like two volumes, but yeah, I love that movie. Um, and Uma Thurman is, uh, you know, the bride. She's so cool. She goes around and she has her death list. I just, you know, not that I have a death list, but I think, yeah, she's she's amazing in that movie. Um, so for sure. Perfect. I'm going to have to watch that movie. I, I actually only think I've seen only one of the two, so I need to uh, go oh, back yeah. and watch just, them both. Just sit down and watch it. It'll take like five hours, but, you know, these days you spend that amount of time watching, binging like a show, right? So. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Okay. What is your favorite app on your phone that you're using today? I have a astrology app called Chani. Um, and it's very, so she does like a reading and it's not just like that. I fully like believe everything's going to happen that she says, but uh, she does. She, I love her voice. It's very relaxing. And she talks about like themes in your life that you can like think about. So even if you're not like, it's a full moon, so I'm going to go crazy or anything like that. It's um, yeah, it's a really good app. So I highly recommend it. Love it. All right. I'm, uh, I'm on board with that one. I like the soothing voice. I like the calmness of it. That's good. She's great. What is the meaning of success to you? I think being in line with sort of like your intentions and 
what you want to accomplish in the world and developing, you know, positive relationships around, around that. All right. And the very last question, what is your superpower? I think part of it is that I've lived in different places, you know, talked and worked with different types of people. And I, so I think sort of like flexibility in terms of me being able to go somewhere, fit in, talk to different kinds of people and, and gain sort of a shared understanding from that. And also that can help guide me, like how, what kind of decisions that I want to make. Love it. Very good. Very good. Well, that was so Jessica, fun. I love your questions. <laughs> I, I want to say thank you very much for all of your time today. Uh, you provided a lot of great insight, a lot of great information. And man, it's so useful. So thank you very much for that. And the way that we like to end the show is that we like to give you the last word. So anything that you want to share to founders, to the investor community, I turn it over to you. But thank you again for joining us today. My dog is also insisting on joining. So shout out to Eddie. Yep. Sorry, the doorbell's ringing, but um, I guess last words is just, you know, thank you for what you're doing. It's the operators are definitely doing the work, the real work. And so just remembering that and, and partnering with, you know, investors and, and people to really help support the, the ultimate mission. Right, Eddie? Yes. Okay. Eddie, Stop. I love it. Thank you very much, Jessica. <laughs> Thank you. It was really great. I really enjoyed this conversation. So looking forward to hearing it. Likewise. Okay. That was awesome. There was so much good stuff there that was shared. Uh, Jessica really has a super strong understanding of the whole product fit, market lifestyle, everything that goes into really building out a company. And I think with uh, the new fund and where they're focusing in on women's health is phenomenal. I do think that there's a, a really big opportunity in this category. And I think what she's put together and the companies that she's getting to talk to and invest in, again, is, is phenomenal. Uh, there was uh, lots of great things that she provided, um, you know, from uh, the impact, uh, digital health, the areas that they're focused on, and of course, uh, she talked about gender equality and, and other things that really do need a lot of focus. And with uh, her background in, in biochem uh, and uh, philosophy, I think uh, she's got all the right stuff that's going to help a lot of founders succeed in building out their products and, and getting them on shelf. So again, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Um, one reference I would throw out there that's a really good book that might fit into this. Uh, it's um, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control by Sarah Hill. Uh, great book. It, it really does really dive into the problem of, uh, of what birth control has done over, uh, you know, the century, I guess, is, uh, as long as it's been around, but it certainly is um, a good thing to get into. And I think you'll start to find a lot more startups coming into this space and hopefully trying to change the way women health, women's health uh, works and uh, finding better solutions. So uh, again, thank you very much, Jessica, for, uh, for joining us today. And thank you, everybody. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share with your friends or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit opn.ninja. Thank you, everybody, and have a fantastic day.